Millennial Falcon, a pop culture podcast by three geeky millennials. I'm Willie B. Dobbs, a filmmaker in the D.C. area, and today with me, as always, is... I'm Hui Chen Bui, a writer for Slash Film and a pop culture journalist in D.C. And I am Anya Crittenden, a writer at Gay Star News. Alright, so the movie industry has changed a lot over the years. It's always a changing industry, um, but we're going to talk today about how the internet has become an influencer on the movie industry between things like streaming and social media and word of mouth and sites like Rotten Tomatoes, which has recently been in the news because Hollywood studio execs are not happy with it. There was a really great write-up in the New York Times about Rotten Tomatoes and how studio execs are pointing fingers, basically saying that the review aggregator site is the reason why movies did not do well this year and how it's ruining the movie industry. It was all very dramatic um, and them accepting no blame on themselves, of course. So, we're going to talk about Rotten Tomatoes. They did it for the fans, right? Yeah, absolutely, of course. There was one funny executive who said it was his mission to destroy Rotten Tomatoes. Goodness. (laughs) That's 3,000 credits. (laughs) I know, it's absurd. So we're going to talk about just kind of the way the internet has changed the movie industry today, and we're going to start with just talking about Rotten Tomatoes and then branching out into other things. So what do you guys think of Rotten Tomatoes? Do you guys use it? Does it influence your movie-going choices? Um, it influences my movie-going choices if I want to see, a, like, a, a movie that I know isn't going to be super great. Um, like, if it's going to be mediocre, I want to know if it's worth spending money on. Because, I mean, I know that the basic... If you if people don't know how Rotten Tomatoes works, the basic function is every critic is able to give a rotten or fresh rating on a scale of, I want to say, up to 10. And at a certain at a certain point in their on their scale... A, a movie is deemed fresh or rotten. So you get... It's, um, 60% is the cutoff for whether it's fresh. If anything is below that, then it's rotten. Right. So basically, if a movie is 75% fresh, that's still a quarter of critics who didn't like it, um, but that's three quarters who did. And so you kind of have to realize that when a movie is 50% rotten, that means that it was... That's literally just mixed reviews, um, because some of them might say they're uh, fresh, or, or some of them might say they're rotten. But then within the fresh rating, critics can have a lot of problems with movies, but still give it a fresh rating, and so that kind of like kind of curves the scale almost. Um, yeah, the binary so nature is definitely the, like you have to just keep that into consideration. Reductive. That, like, well, yeah, you're yeah. not like you can. You can only like it and not love it and still give it a fresh rating. So. Yeah, like a lot of movies get 90... A lot of movies get 80 to 90%, but they're not as good as you think that score would be, you know? Um, but then you get movies that are like 99% fresh and they're really... like that's um, it's, it's an amazing feature film like Toy Story 3. Um, and so, you know, it's a kind of a... It's, like even though it's a it's a, a scale in which a lot of people judge which movies they want to see, it's it's complicated. And I usually I use it. I I you know if a movie's coming out and I want to check the reviews, I go to Rotten Tomatoes first and I see you know what the general consensus of it is. Um, and I think that there there's no harm in doing that. And I think that more people are 
I think more people than than most years have begun to do that. And, you know, we can talk about whether or not Rotten Tomatoes really affected the box office, but, I mean, if people are going online to see what people, critics, or other people who may have seen advanced screenings or, or, you know, they're waiting for opening weekend reviews of, like, regular civilians going to see movies, and, you know, they're seeing what people are thinking on Twitter or on Facebook, and you can make your choice on whether or not you want to see a movie. It's not, you know, and if the movie's bad, I'm not going to go see it. Unless it's, like, one of those, like, fun-to-watch bad movies, which, I mean, we've talked about in the past, I'm not a big fan of. Uh, like the room, um, so I mean, I I like using Rotten Tomatoes, and I think it's a com- it's a complex and complicated system, but I think it works for like movies. You know, like what do you guys think? So regarding the increased prominence of Rotten Tomatoes, it should be noted that Fandango, which is one of the largest ticket buying sites um, online, has started. Uh, showing Rotten Tomato scores right next to uh, all the movies that yeah. are available and like all the run times and, and stuff, all the show times. Yeah, sorry. I noticed so, that a few uh, like a couple of years ago. Yeah, because uh, Fandango actually uh, owns Rotten Tomatoes now. It yeah. uh, has, or at least has a large share of it. Um, so Rotten Tomatoes is sort of studio owned because Fandango is in turn uh, partially owned by Warner Brothers. So yeah. there's like a little bit and, of. And and yet when Batman vs Superman and Suicide Squad <laughs> came out in 2016. The the DC fanboys were telling everybody to boycott uh, Rotten Tomatoes, and yet they were boycotting their own studio. Yes, so it's weird. The thing is, Rotten Tomatoes is a fairly is a pretty independent company, um, which uh, for the work that they're doing, it, they are as objective as they can. But when it comes to the business of movie reviews and critiquing, that is as subjective as you can be. So mm-hmm. the arguments that you know Rotten Tomatoes is uh, dividing Hollywood or dividing movies by turning film criticism and film appreciation into like this subjective sport, it's true because that's what film criticism is. It's this film critic's um, opinion of a movie, but and some people will like a movie more than others will like it. Um, but the thing that Rotten Tomatoes does differently is that it aggregates all these things, and they do have a very um, in-depth system for doing these things. So they have their own sort of uh, an analysts who look who comb through all the reviews and will decide whether it's a fresh or rotten rating, or will right. they'll get submitted from the critics themselves who say this is a fresh review or this is a rotten review. And um, all the critics who are um, featured on Rotten Tomatoes are also sort of vetted. They are Rotten Tomatoes approved in a way. So you have to have at least, I think, 10 published reviews um, to be considered a legitimate um, Rotten Tomatoes reviewer and um, have your score implemented into the overall score. So the big criticism that like Hollywood executives have with Rotten Tomatoes is that it's reductive and that it uh, reduces these, this, the nuances of film criticism onto what Anya was saying, onto a binary scale. Um, but that also avoids the fact that it is actually on a 100% scale and whether to take the people take the rotten or fresh rating um, at face value is their own decision. Uh, and also that sort of criticism of the reductive nature of film criticism has been ongoing for years. Yeah. First with like 
the four the four or five star review or you know yeah. having the thumbs up thumbs or thumbs down. down rate system with uh, Siskel and Ebert. So yeah. it's a constant battle that Hollywood has been having against film critics, and so it's nothing new. And neither is Rotten Tomatoes. They've been around for years now. Of course. And the thing I, be, I think people forget is that you can read the full reviews that these critics post. Like, mm-hmm. they give a little blurb, uh, like, a, like a short summation of what they thought of the movie, like on the page, like on the movie's page. And then you can cl- click a link that says read full review. So, like, you can get what, like, the New York Times thought of the Emoji movie, which was, I mean, it was a terrible movie, yeah. but you could read, like, all of it. Like, that's how I was able to find the best reviews of the Emoji Movie, and by best I mean what the most well-written reviews mm-hmm. um, of, of a shit movie. Um, sorry, shit Emoji Movie. Um, <laughs> and, yeah, and so, you know, it's kind of, it's, it's that's what it is. It's, a, it's, a, it's an aggregator of reviews, and, you know, I think that it, it's, I think in, in the, the, the internet's day and age, you know, it's, we're at like peak internet of social media and reading everything online and like a lot of people that's how a lot of they interact with their friends and their family is through online only like we're skyping this conversation right now the three of us none of us are in the same room and yet we're going to post this later and and then all our friends can listen to it on itunes later like they will not be in the same room as us like this the po- a podcast is an all online thing, and a lot of things we do now are are all online, and and that includes reading movie reviews, and reading uh you know people's opinions on movies, and get, having back and forth dialogues about it, and so the internet is definitely a force to be reckoned with when it comes to movies because a lot of people on the internet you know have similar opinions, and so when everyone has a similar opinion on why you know, a movie is bad, maybe the movie's bad. Maybe it's not, you know, like, that's the thing is, you know, if 90% of the people who see, uh, what's that, what was a terrible movie that came out this year that wasn't the Emoji movie? I already used that Pirates. example. Transformers. Or Transformers. <laughs> Transformers. Tried and true terrible movie franchise. If 90% of the people who see that movie say it's a bad movie, it's probably a bad movie. You know, like, it's not like 10% of the people who have you know, <laughs> risen to a higher plane of existence and understand the meaning behind Transformers. It's that some people just don't care and they want to, they, you know, they want to see shitty, trashy uh, blockbuster movies. And I think for a long time, people were, I don't want to even say okay with it, but like, you know, you go back and watch blockbusters for the past 30 years, there's a ton of terrible ones. And then, and then the good ones are picked out of the weeds and then they're, you know, you know, placed upon a pedestal as the as great blockbusters, but you know, within for every you know great blockbuster that comes out in a in a movie season, there's like thirty that are terrible, and so I think we're just seeing the fact that there you know we're we're understanding that this more that you know a lot of blockbusters are bad, and we and we as a movie going audience deserve better. yeah it really does and Hollywood has not. Hollywood has not discovered that, or they don't want to admit that, because that means that they have to take more time to make the movies good, because making a crap movie is real easy and real cheap, and making a, a great movie that is well, you know, well-made, well-reviewed, and, like, is an all-time thing is rare. It's becoming more frequently, as we saw with this past season. We talked about how this is probably the greatest summer re- 
the greatest reviewed summer movie uh, season in a long time, possibly decades. And even though it was the worst summer box office in a long time as well, it's because I I think it's just a combination of May and June were terrible months for movies, and so when all the good movies came out in July, no one wanted to go see them because they thought they wouldn't be as good. Well, I think it's also a matter of, you know, rising ticket prices. People have more access to streaming and have more access to just movies outside of the theaters now. Movie theaters aren't the number one source of entertainment for people anymore, so that's why people are more particular about what movies they will go yeah. see. In and theaters. so many people are so, like, "I'll just it, wait for it to hit Netflix." Like I hear that all the exactly. time. Exactly. This yeah. was a, and this has been a problem since television was invented in the '60s and '50s. You know that Hollywood has always feared what they don't understand, and you know you look at. When uh, movies, when TV came out, it was still in black and white. So a lot of mov- a lot more movies were being made in color or made in like fan, you know, cinema, you know, cinema, cinema, uh, scope and like you know all different like kind of you know uh, fads of getting in getting uh, butts in the seats. You know, 3D movies and uh, you know just different things. You know, smell a vision, like all the things that they can do to make people go to see the movies instead of waiting for them for a year to come out and see them on cable. So it, it's always been a... Pro, you know, Hollywood has always had... Or the Hollywood movie system, we should say. Hollywood is also in, te- in television. But a ho- the studio system has always had a problem with other things, like net, like television, like the internet as a, as a way of streaming video. Once, once streaming video... Once you could stream video and... and a good quality, and you don't need to download movies. Uh, like once Netflix began began their thing of doing online streaming, like they had, you know, Hollywood's trying to do new things. I don't think it's a surprise, although it could be just coincidence that I believe Netflix started streaming their stuff around two thousand eight, two thousand nine, and uh, that's when Hollywood really started doing three uh, D movies. And I don't know if that's a coincidence, but it seems like that's like my crack park theory. Well, Netflix it, didn't. They started when they first started streaming. They had a lot of bad B movies available, so they weren't true. exactly a huge uh, titan yet, a dominating force. But I think they were starting to pick up around two thousand eight, two thousand nine. So that's yeah. when, yeah, you did see start to see more gimmicks in the theaters and stuff. Although noticeably, um, Hollywood is starting to roll back those sort of yeah. gimmicks. Uh, there was some news earlier this summer that IMAX 3D, um, the IMAX company is starting to uh, emphasize more just IMAX 2D. They're no longer doing as much IMAX 3D now because there's less money in IMAX 3D and people aren't willing to spend that extra, like, six bucks yeah, I, to see Honestly, IMAX. seeing IMAX in 2D is more fun than 3D because mm-hmm. 3D, you, you still get that darkened vision even yeah. if it's IMAX. Exactly. And you get you can't see out of I mean I don't wear glasses so it's never a problem for me but you can't see the entire frame at once. Yeah, welcome. And it must be worse with people who do have glasses because you have to wear two glasses. Yeah, yeah. I think it is kind of um, a more complicated issue than just like one side is wrong and you know it's definitely like Hollywood execs need to take some accept some responsibility and realize that these sequels and blockbusters that are not good movie like are. the Mummy wasn't a good movie, mm-hmm. and they're still going forward with a universe yeah. about it. Um, on the other hand, I think 
there are some limitations to something like Rotten Tomatoes. Um, I mean, I love it, as Willoughby was saying, as, like, an aggregator site. Like, I love being able to find reviews for something in one place where I can then read, like, full reviews. On the other hand, I know that people who are not as invested in the movie industry like we are or well-versed in it do look at just a simple score and don't read the reviews and yep. do make decisions. Like, my mom texts me all the time and she's like, oh, this movie has, like, 15% because I'm not going to see it. And it's like, like you were saying, Willoughby, if, like, that many people said it was bad, it probably isn't a great film. On the other hand, you know, like... Uh, Home Again, the new Reese Witherspoon movie has a 33%. I'm still planning on seeing it because I love her, I love rom-coms, I want to support female-led and created films, and I feel like I might like it more than some critics, and I'm willing to give it some passes just in what I like and who I am. But I think there are, I think, while it's not, like, ruining the movie industry like execs say they are because they really should just be making better films... I think there is a danger with kind of, like, the mass public in seeing, like, one one number that is binary in nature and kind of making, like, a pass on it. Um, and, I mean, I think it's, for the most part, okay, because, like we said, like, these films are bad, so, like, you know, it's one thing. But I think there is there are limitations to Rotten Tomatoes. Yeah. Yeah. I, I want to make I a counterpoint. So... It. A lot of people who aren't as invested in the movie industry, as you say, uh, rely on word of mouth to decide whether they see a movie or not. And I would argue that Rotten Tomatoes is sort of an, a more systemized version yes. of word of mouth. I do agree with that. I agree. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I think, yeah, no, I think, and I think that's a good point. I mean, I think that's why you saw something like The Big Sick do so well. Um, you know, not like a blockbuster level, but like as a smaller film, it did make good money for its budget and what it was and I think a lot of that has to do with its good Rotten Tomato score and the word of mouth and so I think you know it does I think Baby Driver Baby Driver had, had a similar experience with that Wonder Woman as well because it only grew exponentially in box office as the word of mouth uh, grew and we're and let's let's not limit this to the summer Get Out had a huge word of mouth presence mm. online you know, once once the reviews got out and everyone started tweeting about how great the movie was, I think that's what really m- helped it get a huge yeah. box office grab. Even in what March, February, mm-hmm. like, and that's kind of the incredible thing. If you look at movies like Get Out, like Wonder Woman, like The Big Sick, Baby Driver, things like these that are like you know original and well made and like genuinely good films, and also led by people of color and women you know, and are different and you see how well they do and how the word of mouth and how like social media helps them. And you wonder why execs aren't taking that lesson. I mean, it's because they don't want to admit that they're wrong and, you know, white men in Hollywood don't want to give up all their power. So you know why, but like Mm -hmm. we're seeing with our own eyes what movies are doing well and why. And yet execs are insisting that it's Rotten Tomatoes that made Pirates 5 not do so well, even though it's like no one asked for this, no one wanted it, it wasn't a good film. Like, <laughs> yeah. They don't want to see the truth right in front of their eyes. So let's talk a little bit about um, word of mouth and by extension social media and how it's starting <coughs> to become a much more pervading for- force for uh, not just people who are passionate about film uh, and the film industry, but just uh, 
word of mouth and general audiences. So do you think that social media is starting to become a yes. stronger force? I want to talk everyone? about the Lupita oh, Nyong'o, yeah. Rihanna movie, because I'm, like, still, like, I still can't believe that that's really happening. Because, like, so what happened is someone first posted a photo of them at a fashion show on Tumblr and was like, imagine a movie where they're, like, doing a heist, et cetera, et cetera. And that got a lot of traction. And then someone else posted the same picture on Twitter with a similar concept, and that got a lot of traction. And people tagged Rihanna and Lupita, who then responded positively. Ava DuVernay was like, I'll direct this. Issa Rae was like, I'll write this. And then the next thing you know, Netflix is like, we're doing this movie. And it's all because of social media and the power of retweets and the power of word of mouth. And I'm sure there was, like, there were behind-the-scenes conversations that took place with the people involved, but we didn't see those. But, like, we saw the traction the the Twitter and Tumblr posts were getting, and then we saw saw action being taken on it. Yeah. Yeah. And then the demand for this of a project entirely female-led of women of color. And, again, that gets to the point of, like, yes, Hollywood people do want diverse movies like there is a demand for them yeah it's amazing that social media has become not only this stomping ground for uh, fans and critics but also uh for professionals for people who actually have uh who actually make a change in the industry uh we saw that with you know with uh the ava duvernay rihanna lupita nyong'o movie but we also saw it uh recently with the case, another case of whitewashing, um, with Ed Screen's character in the Hellboy reboot. So mm-hmm. after uh, he was cast um, as a Japanese American character, there was uh, u- the usual cries of outrage that would usually be met with silence or uh, non-action from the studios. But amazingly, this or is the first time. Huh, I'm sorry. Terrible statements. Or terrible, or terrible excuses. Statements. Yeah. And yeah. I think this is the first time that it's happened that an actor has stepped down of his own volition um, in response to this. Uh, these uh, critic, criti- these uh, critics who are calling for more diversity, and he- and it shows that it, that could happen, and that could have happened in the past. Like Scarlett Johansson could have seen the backlash and said, "I'm not going to do this movie," mm-hmm. and yet. You know, she continued, you know, and making half-assed statements about, you know, inclusion and diversity. I think there is a line that should, that can be drawn between how much fan power there is and, you know, the actual creative professional process. But I do think that this sort of um, more immediate, more interactive relationship that Hollywood is starting to have with uh, the general audiences is good, and it's a sign of a changing industry. Uh, like Anya and like we were all saying, um, I was speaking about this a little earlier with Slash Film, um, specifically about Rotten Tomatoes and everything, and uh, we compared it to how the music industry uh, reacted in response to Napster and other, uh, you know, music streaming sites such as that. And the music industry didn't react very well. It caused a huge loss of revenue for artists, for um, labels and everything. And they're still trying to um, make sense of how to, you know, deal with this sort of changing way that people want to receive their music and their entertainment. I think Hollywood is starting to have to deal with that as well. And I think, yeah. like, honestly, the, the thing that they should go back to is the core of what people go to movies for which is good story um good good movies good uh actors and people who 
uh, can see their own themselves on screen. Do you think, so, I mean, we've talked about how kind of, like, movie tickets have increased in price and people are going to movies less and streaming and all that, um, which I think is a shame mm-hmm. on the one hand only because I am that person who loves the movie-going experience. Like, I love the communal aspect of seeing a room, like, a movie in a darkened room with other people. I mean, Get Out was a phenomenal experience, ex- like, with so many other people. And I don't want to, like, see that kind of be diminished, do you think something like Movie Pass is going to help that? You have theaters like AMC who are taking issue with something like Movie Pass. For those who don't know, Movie Pass is this new program where basically for yeah. $10 a month you use your card to go see a movie a day. So you can see like, you know, 10 movies in a month for $10. You can see 20 movies in a month for $10. See 30 so, movies in a month for $10. Yeah, so I mean, you know, first off, is that hurting theaters? Is, is you know, will it help people get back into seats? Like, what do you guys think of that kind well, of I development? I think, as people may not know this, but movies, a lot of movie theaters get their, their most of their money from concessions. Concessions. So that's, I mean, that's why a bottle of water is literally $3.75 at a movie theater just the same like at baseball games too like that's how they make their money is by all this food and you know getting popcorn for $13.75 is a lot and so and along with like a soda and so I think that having movies down the thing is movie pass covers the rest of the cost I believe yes Mm -hmm. they do they like they they buy tickets at like full price like and then basically allot them to their customers more or less. Yeah. So, like, the studios and the movie ticket, the movie theaters aren't losing money. It's just the socialization of movie buying, movie ticket buying. Exactly. It's not, you know, it's not a capitalist system. It's a, it's, it's one company distributing tickets evenly. (laughs) Um, so, so maybe the money aspect isn't, like, a big part of it, even though you do have theaters like AMC who are taking issue with it. Do you think it'll help, like, us, like, people see an increase in people attending movies? Honestly, I I think so. Yeah. I see it as sort of, I see it as as something that could be a saving grace for uh, the movie-going experience. Because movies, uh, the box office have been seeing audiences uh, turn away from going to see movies in the theaters. And they've been bleeding, like, ticket sales for years now. So, I think that it honestly could benefit uh, AMC theaters and other theater chains to partner with MoviePass um, and ha- embrace it as a way of getting people back in their seats. And it does, you know, the movie tickets are a huge factor in whether people will go see a movie or not because they're just so damn expensive. I mean, $10 yeah. a month. I mean, $10 is even cheaper than what a regular movie ticket is. So just yeah. seeing one movie a at month, at least in major mo- metropolitan areas. Yeah, exactly. So just seeing one movie movie a month would still be cheaper under Movie Pass than seeing just a movie with a regular ticket. So I am hopeful that it could be the it could be sort of like a new way of uh, getting people to see movies in theaters. I wonder if you know it's it's either this option or just like more streaming services or more gimmicks. Really, it's. It's either this or going all out, and people 
will maybe go see something like that's in 5D, but then they'll get tired of it after a few months. So I'm all for it. I love saving money, and I see so many movies, so it, I only see the benefits in it so far. Yeah, I think it also depends on like if how avid of a movie theater goer you are, because like we all see movies all the time, so it's be- it benefits us. But if like my mom ha- hasn't seen a movie since Wonder Woman in the theaters, so like it wouldn't benefit her to spend to be paying for something that that she'll only see like every three months. But or would it encourage you know? her to go see movies in theaters? That's the question. Well. That- for her, probably not, because she doesn't really like blockbusters. Um, but, you know, in the general audience, maybe. Because, like, people will go see more movies. They have the the fact that, oh, like, this $10 subscription can allow me to see any movie I want, essentially. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and there are, I mean, there are some drawbacks that maybe it'll, like, work on. Because, like, I think you can only get tickets day of, right? Yes, movie you can order ahead. So, like, you know, for a big movie, like... Star Wars, you're probably still going to be paying out of pocket because you're probably going to be wanting to buy your ticket in advance. And, you know, and that's, I think that's okay for most films. So, like, it's only, you only have to be paying out of pocket for, like, a couple a year. And it doesn't do anything with, like, IMAX or, you know, 70 millimeter. Um, but again, those are, like, kind of rare. So, like, even if you would be paying a couple times a year out of pocket, like Willoughby was saying, if you go to the movies frequently, you will be getting your money's worth. on this thing, even for just general films. This could be the Hollywood executive's answer to people seeing bad movies, because I know with more money, like, more money to spare, and just, like, basically seeing free movies, I'm gonna go see a bad movie in theaters, because I am curious about it, and I don't have to pay for it, so it's just, like, a win-win for me, for the most part. So, there's your answer to the Rotten Tomatoes um, finger-pointing Hollywood executives. Movie yeah, pass. so the answer to Rotten Tomatoes is Movie Pass. Yeah, there you go. We figured it out. Um, but yeah, as kind of like final thoughts and stuff, I think the internet has had mostly a good impact um, on the movie industry, and I think another aspect of that is just social media and the idea of like giving more voices a platform. You know, I think, and maybe it's just me as a journalist and as someone who likes film criticism. You know, I like that we're having more nuanced and different and more extensive conversations about film and kind of specific films or what film is in general. And I think the internet has really just made that far more possible. And I think that's really exciting. Yeah. And I think think it all comes down to us wanting to watch good movies. And that it's a simple lesson, Hollywood. It's, I mean, it, that's what it is. And you know, the Hollywood's like, no, we're going to do a dark universe of terrible universal creatures that you'll you will watch or you won't. Or you, it's like, I don't understand why they're like, well, why not make a good movie? And like the one guy in the studio executive room is like, why can't we make this good? And then thirty of them are like, no, it has to be cheap and terrible. Like, well, it's funny, the, you, the, say, you, say, fair, you say it's cheap. cheap. It's yeah. not cheap. That's cheap. Most, That's most of the bad films are costing, like, so much money to make. and then That is true. Because they either, believe that they'll be surefire hits. In and the then they're yeah. not. Okay, I guess, yeah. Because they, they think it's going to be, a, everyone's going to go see trashy movies, but I think audiences' opinions have changed on what, movie, what terrible movies they want to see. And this is yeah. why there's also an interesting conversation about, like, China 
and their box office is because a lot of these blockbusters, the only reason they're not in the black and like they are making a profit is because of the international markets. Yep. And where they fail here, they do really well, like at the China box office. And so studios the are like, did really well overseas. And so studios are like, look at all this money we're making. There is an interesting thing to know about this summer at the Chinese box office. Even the big blockbusters like The Mummy or Transformers uh, didn't do as well as expected in China. Interesting. Um, yeah. yeah, so apparently the love affair between the, ch- the Chinese bo- markets and Hollywood is starting to fade a little bit too because you know Chinese audiences are starting, one, to become aware that they're being pandered to. So whenever I was reading an article about how, I think it was on theoutline.com, um, about how uh, Chinese audiences during this Transformers scene where Mark Wahlberg drinks um, a beverage that is exclusively marketed in China in like the South Dakota car park and um, all the audiences laughed because it was so obvious the sort of shoehorning in um, Interesting. that's like being pandered to them and also they are starting to branch out more in terms of their own blockbusters you saw that with The Great Wall which was a Chinese Hollywood um, co-production and other very fantastical big budget things so China is starting to have its own market and is becoming less reliant on Hollywood for flashy trashy blockbusters so the formula is starting to fade not just domestically but internationally well there you go it's almost like there's a very clear problem that can be solved really easily Mm -hmm. (laughs) make good movies and I think that's a really good way to end our episode Hollywood needs to just make good movies. It's really as simple as that. Agreed. So let's use that to move on to the next segment of our episode. I really, 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 really like you. But I need to tell you something. All right. Willoughby, why don't you start us off this week? What do you really like? Okay. Um, I really like this podcast called Lore. And it's this kind of 30 minute episode, episodic not episodic, um, it's well, 30 minute episodes of this guy who's like a horror writer who just spends uh, one episode on like a topic or theme about folklore. And a lot of it is dark and horror-y and supernatural and, you know, um, it's real, it's interesting and fun to just kind of like Think about like all these like stories that have been told about like witches and you know supernatural creatures that prey on people and like why why do people think like this? How are these stories manifested? Like why you know uh, I can't even think of it specifically, but like you know or like why do leprechauns leprechauns exist? Like it's kind of like the and he's not dismantling the myths. He's kind of just kind of he's talking. He he tells story these stories and then just kind of goes like. This is probably why they thought of, thought like this back then or something. Um, and it's really interesting. It's really fun. Uh, it's a good, like, it's a good thing to binge. Although a couple episodes in, you're kind of like, oh, man, this is dark. <laughs> um, uh, but it's kind of, it's just like an uh, interesting way of, like, spending this fall season, which is listening to, like, horror stuff. And I'm, I'm like not super into horror as we've previously discussed on this podcast for two years now um, but I think what helps is that I don't get to see anything it's just listening to things uh, and it's listening to this one guy tell stories and stuff 
Uh, so yeah, lore. Speaking of horror, um, I'm going to go next from I really like. I saw a horror movie this weekend. <gasps> HD. And it's been known, too, that I am a little bit averse to horror films. I think we all are. But uh, I, as well as Anya a little bit, am starting to open up the to the idea of the horror genre. Um, so I went to see... It's two years, two years coming. <laughs> More than two years it's coming. It's like a, life, a lifetime yeah. coming. Oh, hell yeah. Let's talk about it. Yeah, let's be real here. <laughs> so, but I think our horror episode was like our third episode on the, on the podcast. Right. So. It was like, we don't like horror yeah. movies. <laughs> yeah. So, um, but it has been a long time coming because I feel like it was kind of in the cards that I would like horror. I do like a lot of the um, the archetypes and the tropes of genre of the genre, and also just the ideas that go into it. Um, yeah, like Buffy's your favorite show. Exactly, Buffy the Vampire Slayer is one of my favorite TV series, and it leans heavily on the idea of monster as metaphor, which is why I think I liked it so much because the entire premise is essentially monsters metaphor and it becomes this giant allegorical coming of age film which I did not expect to be so charmed by and to get feel so emotional over uh, while I was screaming and astonishingly I was not that terrified during it I usually have this sort of lingering fear um, after I see a horror film and it sticks with me for a couple weeks in which I have nightmares and am and am afraid to go in the shower. But in this case, because it was it is so heavily rooted in this sort of allegory of um, childhood fears and the idea of adulthood being this scary, messy, um, foreboding thing, I was able to see it as like this story that worked both universally and also in its own little bubble. And that's why... I loved it, guys. I actually, I enjoyed it a lot. Like, I will say I loved it. That's how far I'll go. Wow. Um, it does meet some of the problems that I have witnessed with horror in that it's not great with female characters. Um, well, Beverly, the main female character, does have a lot to do. She is kind of turned into um, an object of desire for both the boys and also sort of, uh, at one point, a damsel in distress, which I I hear did not happen in the book, but she also has to deal with a lot of things that uh, female characters have to deal with, like sexual, like a sort of sexual assault and sexual awakening. Um, and there is some strong imagery with that, but it, I mean, it has its issues. But I definitely liked it a lot and what it was wow. going for. And I might be on my way to becoming a horror fan. So All we'll right, see. HT. Yeah. Hmm. Anya, what is your really like this week? All right, so I'm going to go in the exact opposite direction of both of you. So after a very long time of knowing this TV show was really good and people recommending it to me and knowing I would love it, but just dragging my feet for whatever reason, I am finally on the Jane the Virgin train. I honestly thought you already were. I thought you were too. Remember when I was watching it, I was you like, keep oh, recomm- I- You kept recommending it to people. And I was like, oh, I've okay. seen it. Anya's on, you know, keeping up with it. I was on the train for Jane the Virgin, just like objectively, because I knew it was great. Like, I knew it was really smart. I knew it was feminist. And I knew Jenny Rodriguez was amazing. And I knew it was funny. Like, I knew all these things. I just hadn't gotten around to watching it myself yet. <laughs> But, like, I was going to keep supporting it, because I was like, this is an important show, it's diverse, and it's, like, really great. I haven't watched it yet myself, but I will, and you should watch it. <laughs> but I have finally watched it, 
Um, Are you caught up? Yes, and I love it. Anya. I love it so much. Uh, Gina Rodriguez is a sensation. That's hilarious, because I started my watch of Jane the Virgin before you, but you have surpassed me. I'm still only on season two. <gasps> oh my god, I... Okay, but so here's the thing, is that, like, I started watching it actually earlier this mm. year, and then, like, dropped off a bit in season one for various reasons, and then picked it back up again recently, and I have binged all of it in just, like, a couple weeks. Like, I became obsessed with this show and just like I could not stop watching because I was like so invested it's so good it's so smart it makes me feel so happy and it's just so lovely and I think it helps actually having a lot of friends who've already watched it and who recommended it to me because now I'm like talking to them about it and it's just really fun but so I am super on the Jane the Virgin train and I just think it is a fantastic show and one of the best out there right now, to be honest. It's so good. It's so good. I was watching it this morning, actually. (laughs) It's so delightful, and it just, it also makes me realize, you know, the CW, you know, a a lot of people talk about, like, their superhero shows, which are fun, especially Legends of Tomorrow, HD. (laughs) Um, But, like, you look at shows like Jane the Virgin and Crazy Ex-Girlfriend on the CW, and you realize some of the really great unique storytelling they're doing and you know it's a shame because they're some of their lower rated shows but the CW doesn't really have to bow to ratings all that much and they're critically acclaimed but like man I want more people to watch these really great shows in the CW. It's unfortunate that the CW still has its reputation of catering you know to teenagers and young women and thus being seen as more lowbrow in a way. Yes. Um, And that's why Jane the Virgin and Crazy Ex-Girlfriend don't get their due as being some of the smartest TV um, I've seen, and that's currently on Except TV. for some, from critics, mm-hmm. like, critics love them and praise them, but, like, you know, you're not seeing as high of ratings, and yeah, people are just saying, like, oh, it's, you know, for young women, so therefore it's not, you know, exactly. as good, or for me, or whatever. Um, well, but you know, Jane it's, so it's great. no arrow. <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> So yeah, so Jane the Virgin is what I'm really liking a lot. Cool. All right, so that is our episode. If you guys have any thoughts on the movie industry and the internet and Rotten Tomatoes or the podcast lore, the movie It, or the TV show Jane the Virgin, definitely come chat with us. And where can they do that, Willoughby? You can find us on Facebook if you search for us there. We're on Twitter, at Falcon Podcast. Um, Our blog is millennialfalconpodcast.wordpress.com. We're on SoundCloud, where you can listen to us there. We're also on iTunes and Google Play, where you can rate, review, and subscribe to us. And uh, where can they find you guys on the internet? You can find me at htranbui on Twitter. You can find me at Anya Crittenton on Twitter. And you can find me at Willoughby Dobbs on Twitter. All right. Thanks for joining us, guys. Bye! Bye!